Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another episode of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Smith, board-certified internist and former president and chief executive officer alumnus of the California Healthcare Foundation. And we'll be discussing healthcare, what happens now. I'm Jason James, executive producer, and I'm joined by our esteemed host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a physician, medical reporter, and past president of the National Medical Association. Dr. Lenore, what's the latest in medicine? Oh, well, you know, everything's about the coronavirus. Now, Jason, you know that uh, obviously two companies have reported that they have very, very good uh, responses to the vaccine, uh, one almost 92%, 195% response. So it does mean that um, we can see some light at the end of the tunnel. So the problem, though, however, is it's not just a vaccine, it's vaccination. And now you know that the Trump administration has been resistant to working with the Biden administration to kind of straighten out the vaccination plan. One of the vaccines really requires a lot of uh, love and care. I mean, it has to be refrigerated to minus 80 degrees. It's two shots. A lot of other things. The other vaccine is a little more flexible. But if we don't have a clear plan about how to distribute it, and it's not the same plan, I think a lot of people will die in in the interim. Right now, we're almost at 160,000. New cases a day, we're almost at 1,500 deaths per day, uh, estimated to go to almost 400,000 and 2,000 deaths per day. Uh, states all over the uh, country are overwhelmed um, by the impact of this virus and trying to get people um, into both hospital care uh, and intensive care. Not only that, but a lot of the other uh, medical problems that people have are not being taken care of. Uh, you couple that with the fact that we're about to go into a period where, uh, you know, families want to get together. Uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, already I've kind of told my grandchildren and my children not to come out here this Christmas. They wanted to come, but I said it's not a good idea for them. It's not a good idea for us. But there are going to be some families that get together, and many of the problems that we see right now not so much because people are not wearing masks, but because families are getting together and they are not safe. So I think we have a lot of stuff in front of us, but I do think we'll get through this period. We get to the vaccine, I think at least we'll have some relief from at least the upward spiral of all these problems. Absolutely. Um, that's definitely something to look forward to. We just have to make it through this final stretch. And I think everything you said leads us into our guest for the day. Well, you know, I think regardless of what happens with regard to the coronavirus, we're really going to have to have a health care system that works for everybody. So we have to look at now what we call the future of health care. Uh, it's, it's going to be different regardless of the circumstances, uh, but it's going to be different if the Republicans have the Senate or if the Democrats have the Senate. Uh, but regardless, it looks like some form of Obamacare will survive. But I don't know of anybody better 
to talk about the future of healthcare and Dr. Mark Smith. Our discussion today is on the future of healthcare in this current political climate. This topic should be on the minds of all African Americans and people of color. How the system changes may significantly affect the health of you and your family. To join this discussion, I know of no better person than Dr. Mark Smith. Dr. Smith is the founder and former president and chief executive officer of the California Healthcare Foundation, an independent philanthropic organization in Oakland, California, dedicated to improving the health of the people of California, particularly the underserved. He has a long history as one of the nation's finest thought leaders on health and as an outstanding clinician. Dr. Smith was the executive vice president and the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation, where he oversaw programs in HIV, reproductive health, and the healthcare marketplace. And he served as a faculty member of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and of Public Health. Dr. Smith was elected a member of the Institute of Medicine in 2001, one of the great honors accessible to only the nation's most outstanding position. He chaired the Institute of Medicine's committee on the Learning Healthcare System, which produced a widely publicized 2012 report best care at lower cost. Dr. Smith holds a BA from Harvard, an MBA from Warden, and an MD degree from the University of North Carolina. That fulfills all of my expected educational uh, qualifications. <laughs> Let me be quiet. From one of our guests. A board-certified internist, he's a member of the clinical faculty at the University of California at San Francisco and maintains an active practice in HIV care at San Francisco General in addition to all his other responsibilities. Dr. Smith, uh, welcome to our discussion at Black Doctors Speak. Well, thanks a lot, Michael. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you. This is an interesting time because of its uncertainty as to what the direction will be of health care uh, in this country. Had uh, Donald Trump won, obviously we would know uh, exactly what was going to happen. If Democrats won the Senate, uh, I think we'd have a better idea. Let's go back to where all this started uh, with Obamacare. Uh, tell us how Obamacare changed healthcare delivery in this country, and did it change just for the poor? Well, Obamacare changed a lot of things. Certainly, one of the things that it changed was it expanded eligibility to Medicaid, which is for the poor. And so in many states, unfortunately not every state, since the Supreme Court decision decided that Medicaid expansion could be left up to state government, and many Republicans governors decided not to expand Medicaid, but in many places, Medicaid was expanded and was made more available to lots of people who didn't have access to health insurance coverage before. But Obamacare also did a bunch of other things. For one thing, for instance, it made it, made it available for kids up to age 26 to be on their parents' coverage. It eliminated certain kinds of underwriting that could exclude people from coverage before and could allow health insurance companies to exclude people from coverage because they had pre-existing conditions. It provided extra money for primary care. It established a, a regimen for free, no-cost screenings that were important and preventive care. So it certainly helped people who are low-income, but it also helped lots of people and uh, who weren't low-income and greatly expanded health insurance access for people in most states in the country. One of the things that's very seldom mentioned is that Obamacare also had an impact on people's private insurance. It did, because under the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, which we talk about as Obamacare, certain practices that health insurance companies had had before, like excluding people with pre-existing conditions, were allowable. 
And so that's part of why uh, there was so much interest in the Supreme Court uh, uh, challenge to Obamacare that was brought by several Republican states and actually supported by the Trump administration is because uh, had the, uh, the ACA or Obamacare been overturned by the Supreme Court, and if it's overturned, it would have taken many millions of people who currently had coverage off of their coverage, and that obviously would have been a bad thing for America. People heard the term individual mandate. Could you explain to us uh, what that is and why that was important? So what is an individual mandate? Individual mandate, which was part of Obamacare, part of the ACA, said that everybody has to have insurance. And what it means is basically if everybody's covered, if everybody is in a position to benefit from this insurance pool, everybody has to pay into the pool. Let's think about uh, car insurance, right? Everybody who drives a car has to have insurance. Now, most people don't have a crash every year, but those few people who do have a crash will have some of their expenses paid for by the collective payments that everybody has made into the pool. And health insurance is pretty much the same way. Most people don't have to go to the hospital every year, but if you only let people pay that they were going to have to go to the hospital, then that wouldn't be a very good way to do insurance. So the notion is if you have a plan, which is what Obamacare was planned to do, that covers everybody or almost everybody. It means everybody has to pay in a little bit so that when you happen to be the unlucky one that needs coverage, you can get the money to pay. That was the notion. Um, and that's what most countries that have universal coverage do in one way or another. Either there's a government program and it's paid for by your taxes or you are required to pay into a pool so that Everybody is covered when they need to get some money from that pool, but that's the basic notion of an individual mandate. Uh, now why was it so uh, controversial? Why was it the basis of uh, an original suit, and what was the consequences of the decision to eliminate the individual mandate? Well, one of the problems here is that it seems to fly in the face of lots of people's individual experience. So if I'm paying like... $500 a month for my insurance policy, at the end of the year, I've paid 6000 and I haven't used it at all. Well, that seems like that's wasted money. Of course, if I'm one of the unlucky ones that comes down with a disease or gets hit by a bus or, say, gets COVID and my bill was 150000 then it seems like a pretty good deal. But, it, it, but, but it's a little counterintuitive for most people that they are paying into something and don't, quote, get anything in the same way that most people don't get anything from their car insurance or their homeowner's insurance every year. So part of the problem here is that it flies in the face of people's kind of experience, and it's hard to understand. The second thing is that health insurance is expensive because health care is expensive, much more expensive in my view than it needs to be. But so this really hurts. And so when people are paying two, three, four, five hundred dollars $500 a month, for insurance and don't seem to get any benefit of it, they understandably are kind of opposed to that. So this is one of the legal arguments that several Republican states used to try to challenge the individual mandate, and it was sufficiently unpopular that basically the Congress reduced the penalty to zero some time ago. So it means that the individual mandate is still kind of on the books, but it doesn't have any teeth anymore. Uh, it turns out that many of the other changes that Obamacare wrought in the market, including expanded federal coverage for expanded Medicaid, these rules against pre-existing conditions, allowing your kids up to age 26 to be on your policy, these things are really uh, passed 
Uh, and in some ways, these things have endured, even though the individual mandate was very uh, unpopular. So the, the core of the, the case that was heard at the Supreme Court this week is whether or not the individual mandate is constitutional, and if it's not, whether that means the whole act is unconstitutional or whether or not it can be struck down and leave the rest. Are you saying to me that the reason there was such opposition was because of the high cost of the mandate? Because you gave the examples of home insurance and car insurance, which people accept almost without uh, objection. Yeah. Well, part of it is cost, and part of it was there's kind of an ideological, political opposition to everything Obama did and to this in particular. So you recall that for five years now, the Republican Party has been saying they wanted to repeal and replace Obamacare. They started with repeal, and then they realized actually a lot of Obamacare is really popular with people. And so that's when repeal got changed to repeal and replace. But ironically, they never have and still have not come up with a particularly comprehensive or clear strategy about how they were going to replace Obamacare and keep the things that people really like about Obamacare, like being able to put your kids on your insurance policy and like preventing insurance companies from excluding you from coverage if you have a pre-existing condition. And so the insurance mandate in some ways became just kind of a symbol for, oh, this unconstitutional intrusion on my individual liberties. But it turns out that much of Obamacare, even without a very effective mandate, works pretty well. And it now appears that uh, it is unlikely that the whole act is going to be struck down. It was just heard in the Supreme Court last week, but most of the people who follow these things closely, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I know lawyers who follow them closely, think that the kinds of questions that were asked and the reaction of many of the justices, including the conservative justices, was that they are not likely to strike down the whole act and throw millions of Americans off of their existing insurance plans. You know, one of the big things that came up during the recent campaigns was the issue of Medicare for All. Now, mm -hmm. uh, many people uh, equate Medicare for All with single-payer. But single-payer mm -hmm. means different things to different people, doesn't it? It does, and so does Medicare for All. It's a slogan, and there might be three or four people who all say they support Medicare for All, and you need to ask them, well, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean... Medicare for all who want it, and if they don't want it, they can stay on their existing insurance plan? Does it mean Medicare for everybody and all of their existing insurance plans and Kaiser and the VA and Aetna and Blue Cross and Blue Shield, all those go away, which is one, one version of single payer? So uh, both of these, these slogans, single payer and Medicare for all, uh, you, you kind of have to go beyond the slogan and ask people exactly what they mean. I, I think it is likely that the, the uh, Biden administration, faced with a deeply divided country and a Senate that at best is going to be also deeply divided, I, I don't think it's likely that they're going to be pushing a version of single payer that means everybody is now in one insurance program. Whatever it is you had last year is gone. It's null and void. But they may open up Medicare, which right now is only open to people who are over 65 or who have a real permanent serious disability. They may open it up to people who are 57 and unemployed and don't have employer-based insurance. They may open it up to other people who'd like to sign up for Medicare. We'll just have to see how it is that slogan works out in practical detail.
What do you think would happen if, in fact, the Republicans get these last two seats um, and uh, they would be in control of the Senate? How do you think the health care system would change? I think it's not likely to change a lot. But remember, in two years, there will be another election and there will be other Senate seats that will be up. And I think a lot depends on, uh, in that scenario, what happens in the first two years of the Biden administration. So I think it is unlikely that the Biden administration could enact really bold and sweeping changes if with a closely divided Senate, even frankly, if the Democrats win these two seats in Georgia, I think it is unlikely that they could assemble all of the Democrats to affect some of the more radical proposals that have come from the Democratic Party. But remember, these things are long-term effects. And if I were in the Biden administration, I'd be looking not only to what it is I could do by executive order this year and next, but I'd also be looking to build momentum for a change in the Senate in two years. How do you think the impact of the COVID uh, uh, pandemic um, has affected the American public's attitude toward uh, some form of government intervention in the insurance uh, industry? It's a great question. I mean, I think, first of all, for most Americans, they get their health insurance through their job. And if their job is pretty stable, then they don't worry too much about health insurance because their health insurance is stable also. As we've seen, the COVID epidemic has really um, uh, dramatically and tragically affected people's employment. So there are a lot of people who don't have a job and don't or soon won't have health insurance, who a year ago really didn't think about this and didn't recognize how fragile their health insurance was and how dependent it was on their job. So I would think to some extent it depends on how quickly the economy recovers and how quickly uh, people are, are able to, again, assume that because they have a good, stable job, they have good, stable health insurance as well. Secondly, I think it's really clear now that there are lots of people who, to no fault of their own, will be hit by a big health problem. And the notion somehow that a country as rich as ours doesn't care about that or hasn't put in place some mechanism to make sure that those people get the care they need and that the caregivers who are caring for them get paid for delivering that care, I think that prospect is even more untenable now than it was a couple of years ago. So I would think that in general, people are even more uh, solidly behind the idea that everybody in ought to have some sort of insurance coverage, but that's not to say that everybody's agreed on how it is that should come about. And that's where I think your question about who controls the Senate what kinds of policy proposals can get not just 51 votes, because the ACA got 51 votes, but what kind of proposal can, can achieve sufficient support that it's not immediately opposed and immediately litigated and then back and forth um, in limbo? Uh, so I think that's going to be the task as to how to translate what I think is a growing understanding of Americans that having health insurance and having health insurance that's not dependent on your having a job is a really important thing that we ought to be trying to, to work out. How we translate that into proposals that can get not just 51%, but 60 or 70 or 80% support among the public and among lawmakers will be important. You've been in this discussion for quite some, some time. You have a sense that the concept of no as a, as a right is a citizen as opposed to a privilege 
has been shifted more toward the concept that it's a right? I do. Now, health is a right, again, is a slogan that's used by various people to mean various things. But if by that you say, Let's, let me translate how I mean that. In a country as rich as ours, in a country as advanced as ours, we ought to be able to figure out a way that the government can make sure that all of our citizens have some sort of protection against catastrophic financial consequences from falling ill. If that's your definition of health care as a right, I think there's actually a majority of the American people and actually large numbers of Republicans who agree with that. And in fact, that is part of why I think the Republican Party has had such difficulty arriving at a replacement for Obamacare, because whenever people look at the notion of throwing millions of people off health insurance or going back to the day where the fact that you had breast cancer three years ago means that you can't ever get health insurance at an affordable rate again, people don't like that notion. So I think, again, I, I want to try to stay away from the slogans because people mean such different things but that slogan. But if, if by health care is a right, you mean everybody in this country protected from financial ruin, from uh, an unexpected, unanticipated health event, everybody ought to have some mechanism to make sure that they get common, routine, necessary care without being sent to the poorhouse or put into debt by doing so. I think there are large, a, a large majority of the American people agree with that. I mean, this is a difficult question, but if you had control of the health care system, maybe 10 things that you would do to uh, achieve a reasonable goal of uh, access to care for at least catastrophic health insurance in this country? Yeah, well, well, first, I think the first order of priority for everybody in this country is to get this pandemic under control because we're approaching now a quarter of a million Americans uh, who've died from it. We're approaching a resurge uh, in places that thought they would be immune in South Dakota, in El Paso, Texas, in places that avoided the first tragic surges in New York and New England, now find themselves in the midst of this pandemic. And as they say, winter is coming. And so the first order of priority, I think, is to emphasize a clear and consistent message that people should wear masks, should wash their hands, should stay away from each other, should stay away from big crowds, particularly indoors, because both for their health and for the safe of the economy, we can't get to the other side until we can get the pandemic under control. There is vaccination on the way. There are treatments that are being developed but we've all got a role to play in making sure the pandemic is under control. Second of all, I think this teaches us that we have to reinvigorate the private, I'm sorry, the public, public health care system that's been so starved over the last several years and that's been so demonized and criticized by the current administration. So uh, we all need the public health infrastructure to protect us from this and future events. Third, I think we've got to work hard on changing the way we pay doctors and hospitals and drug companies and device companies. The way we get paid now, as you know, Michael, is by the visit or by the day in the hospital, whether or not it results in the result that we want. And so as opposed to paying a doctor every time someone comes to visit you for their high blood pressure, we ought to be paying you if their high blood pressure is controlled, whether you do that by having them come in the door or talking to them on the phone, 
or deploying someone to come uh, run a class with other people with high blood pressure to explain why it's so important to take their medicine. And so I've been involved for many years in what we call the value-based payment uh, movement, which is to say we should pay people for results and not efforts. We should pay people for good blood pressure control, good uh, blood sugar control, not the number of times they came through the, the office to kind of uh, uh, swing the, 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 the turnstile. In addition, I think it is important for us to try to find a way to build a consensus about how everybody in America could have some decent form of courage that at least protects them from catastrophic financial circumstances. And so I think expanding Medicaid for the very poor, expanding publicly subsidized options like Covered California here in California and other state-based exchanges that the ACA, the Obamacare, created is an important thing to do. And I think there are other changes, but those are the big ones. You know, I think that certainly those are steps that seem reasonable to me. Uh, getting a, a step up with each one of those is going to be somewhat difficult. Uh, finally, yeah. let's talk a little bit about the future of controlling this pandemic. One of the things that I as an African-American physician is concerned about is the attitude of African-Americans and people of color uh, toward vaccines in general. My feeling is that if you don't get vaccinated against this virus, you will never in your lifetime be able to go to a basketball game or a football game or any jazz concert or a church uh, without worrying that someone there has the virus and that you can get it. Uh, and so I don't see uh, a way out. One of the things that people don't realize, it took almost 50 years to eradicate smallpox, even though that vaccination has been available for a number of years. What can we say? to the African-American community that gives them at least an objective idea about what a vaccination means and how important. Well, so I think this is a great question and a very important issue. Look, black people have every reason to be skeptical about the way in which healthcare treat the African-American community. One of the things that COVID has exposed is, as it didn't come as news to you, but it came as news to some people, but COVID has clearly exposed how much African-Americans and other people of color were at higher risk, not only because of their pre-existing conditions like hypertension, diabetes, but also the pre-existing social conditions. The fact that they were more likely to be the people who were driving the subway, delivering the groceries, uh, picking up the trash, and therefore weren't able to work at home, weren't able to isolate and quarantine. So there are all sorts of disparities that exist, and I think people are understandably skeptical of the medical establishment given the history of racism in medicine. Having said that, it is also really clear that the only way, as you say, we can protect ourselves and our loved ones, our seniors and others, is if people have immunity to this virus, and the best way to do that is with a safe and effective vaccine. I will say, that the way in which President Trump has politicized vaccination, has distorted, demonized, and in my view, undermined the credibility of our public health infrastructure and institutions such as the CDC and the FDA, has made it more difficult. I understand that. At the same time, I actually have confidence in the professionals at the FDA, in the professionals at the CDC. I have confidence in the COVID team that President-elect Biden has appointed. 
And I'm pretty confident that if the FDA says this vaccine is safe and effective, I'd like to see the study, but I'm pretty confident that it will be safe and effective and I'll be one of the people at the front of the line to get one. So it's important, I think, to distinguish between the acknowledging that there's reason for people to be skeptical, but also acknowledging that there's reason for people to want to get this vaccine to protect themselves, to protect their families, to protect the economy and their loved ones. And I think, as you know, the National Medical Association, the representative organization of African-American physicians, has, I think, quite reasonably said it's going to have its own task force to look at whether these vaccines are safe and effective. I think that's a good thing. I think they will agree when they come out that they are. And so I think it'll be important that people hear from black doctors, from black celebrities, from black leaders in every walk of life. This is not some trick. This is not some conspiracy. It's really important that people get vaccinated. It's important to their lives. It's important to our economy. And it's important to our ability to protect ourselves and our loved ones. You know, one of the things that I've noticed since California made vaccinations mandatory, I really don't hear many of the arguments that I used to about getting vaccinated. And so I'm encouraged by the fact that people are at least listening. Uh, my feeling is obviously as a black physician uh, with a fair amount of, of with, a, with a fairly large constituency that uh, all we can do is give them information and then it's up to them to make decisions. But I think that uh, if in fact a number of organizations present this information about these vaccines, hopefully people will understand. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I just wanted to thank you both for your leadership and for that last thing you said. I think for people who are listeners of yours, for people who've been following you and trust you for many years, for you to be able to say, you know, I've looked at the data. The data are quite persuasive. This thing is effective. This thing is safe, and people should should take it. means a lot. It means a lot to the community, and it means a lot to people who are understandably looking for voices that they can believe in and trust with the scientific data. Well, certainly thank you for that, and uh, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Uh, I think that uh, you made clear a lot of the issues that African uh, Americans and others in this country are confused about in terms of where we are in this debate, uh, and hopefully that we get this pandemic under control and move forward. Once again, let me thank Dr. Smith. Him and all the people I know is probably more aware all of all the interactive dynamics are going to go into the decisions made about health under the Biden administration. So thank you, Dr. Smith, for joining us. I couldn't agree more. That was fantastic information and, and definitely worth listening to. I want to change pace a little bit and go to some of the questions that we receive from our listeners. The first one is, how much of an impact does the federal government actually have on our health? Oh, I think the federal government has tremendous impacts on our health. First of all, it takes care of the uninsured uh, and the poor. That's the first thing. Secondly, it sets standards for um, for other private insurance companies to make decisions. And finally, it's most people who have this kind of insurance don't consider government insurance, but it really is. It handles the whole Medicare program, a program that every person, Republican and Democrat, is happy to have. So it has a tremendous impact on our health coverage. Right. And so as we look at, you know, what you mentioned earlier about a vaccine coming, looking like we're at the you know, light at the end of the tunnel for the coronavirus, people are asking, 
once coronavirus is under control, what should the next focus be? Well, the next focus should be on preparing uh, the country and the world for the emergence of another virus and learn, taking the lessons we've learned from the coronavirus to try to isolate that virus in the place where it starts and to try to handle populations so that they can deal with the virus far more effectively. Regardless of the virus, I think it's still going to be three things, staying in place, social distancing, uh, and wearing a mask. So I think we've learned a lot by the, dealing with this virus that will give us at least a template for dealing with other viruses. Well, that's definitely comforting to hear, for sure. One last thing here. With this new administration coming in and, you know, this vaccine and such, is it safe to feel like this is a turning point for African-Americans in terms of having their health issues addressed and cared about? Uh, Jason, that's a tough one. I think because um, so much is promised and so little has been given, it's hard to predict that. I think the Biden administration has so many problems just dealing with the day-to-day stuff. I think that the African-American agenda uh, will be maybe delayed but not denied. Well, I will certainly say that that is refreshing to hear. Um, It does feel like there is hope again in this country for the first time in in four years. Um, So it's great to hear you say that. Well, you know, again, uh, I'm taking an optimistic point of view, um, and we should really expand that conversation, but we're really out of time. So I want to thank Dr. Smith for joining us, but most of all, I'd like to thank the people who have been loyal to our podcast and listen every week, and those of you who are new, I want you to remember, you know, that's your biggest asset, so protect it. Thank you so much, Dr. Lenore. Black Doctor Speak is a weekly podcast sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media at Black Doctor Speak on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and at Black Doc Speak on Twitter. And if you enjoy our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Amazon, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone. <laughs>